Yes. I have so many paranormal things to tell you. Okay. All right. Well, to start, this is Two Girls, One Coast. Two Girls, One Coast. Uh, we are your hosts. That is Corinne. Hi. I'm Sabrina. And I have a question for you, Corinne. Yes. Did you dream of me last night? I did not, but I had a horrible nightmare. And not about me, though? No. Why did you dream of me? Believe I astral traveled to you last night. Oh. <gasps> Like my ad, like you found me in the dream space. You were sleeping. You saw me. What was I wearing? You were under your covers. So I don't know. Shoot. I'm like, how do we prove this? It's happening. You're getting powerful. Basically, it was very, very brief. Okay. So I have been getting massages every week because I'm treating myself. Self care. Wow. It's important. I'm an adult. I'm spending my money how I would like to spend my money. Yeah. You don't have to <laughs> explain it to anyone. Everyone spends their money on different things. Yes. So my thing is getting a massage. And I felt like in a very meditative space last night that I could feel myself outside of my body. So I decided I was like, let's send my astral self to you, Corinne. This was me. Like this was an 80 minute massage. I think for the first like 10 minutes, I was getting into this meditative state and I could feel Mm -hmm. myself outside of my body. And I felt like the energy of it. And then I decided, okay, let's see what I can do. And I was trying to send my astral soul to you. And so I kept like envisioning you and I envisioned your apartment. I envisioned Boston. And then I was calling your name and I said it over and over and over, like in my astral self, I was like, Corinne, Corinne, Corinne. And then I saw you and Brian in bed and it was super blurry because I think I'm not good at this yet. I'm still figuring it out, but I could like see the outlines of it. I kept trying to call your name. And I was like, I'm curious if I can prove if this actually happened. So I wanted to know if you dreamt of me or if you heard your name being called at all last night. And it was really brief. And then I got home from the massage. I thought I was going to fall asleep so easily, but I have not been sleeping well lately. And I think it's because I can feel like, I don't think my soul is resting. Like I truly feel like I'm astral projecting at night or I'm hovering above my body. Like I don't think I'm fully projecting and traveling yet, but I, I'm tapping in, I'm tuning in. Oh, wait, I'm devastated that I didn't. I mean, maybe I did, but I don't remember. I'll try it again tonight. Yeah. I feel like now that I know this, I'm going, I'm going to really pay attention to my dreams because I I really didn't sleep for the past like four or five days. I didn't sleep well either. And I was like tossing and turning and barely asleep at all. What's up? I feel like that's a thing lately. Like what's up in the air? Cause multiple people I've talked to. I don't know. have said that. Is it because Taylor Swift is in Los Angeles and the energy is whack? Did you see there all of those reports being like Taylor Swift is saving the economy? Really? Oh my gosh. People are flooding to whatever cities and towns that she's pl- playing in. And it's just like the local economy is just booming for a short period of time when she's there. And it's really helping a lot of places out, which I'm like, that's incredible. She should just always be on tour. I, I will say in seeing Taylor extend her tour and do what she's doing, it makes me feel like we can we got this with our tour, which... By the way, this episode comes out September 3rd. 
our first show is in four days. Four days. Yeah. I mean, the amazing, it's just, I've never speechless been to anything that Taylor Swift has done. I've never been to a concert, but seeing all the clips, I'm just like, geez, like she's, she's a performer and she also cares for all of the people. I was reading about her, uh, tipping her drivers for the tour, like between hundred and 200 K, which I'm like, good for her. Like that is someone that you want to high praise, high praise for her, her choices. Oh my gosh, Sabrina, I can't get past this whole potential astral projecting. You don't remember anything about like, do you remember the room? Do you remember what I was wearing? You don't remember anything like that? I was trying really hard to focus in on things, but it really was pretty blurry. Like I could focus Mm. I could see you and Brian's shapes. Like it felt like I was stretching, you know, like I wasn't fully there. So in that regard, it's probably why like I didn't actually make contact. But the fact that I was able to visualize and experience that I'm close, I'm getting there. And someone recently tagged me in a thing and I wish I had it saved, but someone tagged me on an Instagram reel. And it was all about how when you're frequency is vibrating or your energies are vibrating at a certain frequency, Mm -hmm. there are symptoms, there are side effects. One of them is being invisible to others around you. Really? That is really interesting. Do you feel like you've been exceptionally invisible recently? Because I feel like you've been working so much on taking up space. I've been inside a lot lately, or I've been alone a lot lately, which is kind of nice. But, um, I'll, I'll walk the streets later today and let you know, see what it, what comes your way. It is interesting. I feel like I love the age of internet and TikTok and all of that for the purposes of learning so much more about other people's beliefs and just kind of testing out different things when it comes to like spirituality and witchiness and seeing what feels right for me. And I love all the vibrational theories and and all of that, where it's like, we're all just at certain frequencies and how frequencies affect you. And yeah, it, it's made me want to wear, I was watching a video the other day that was like about fabrics and how certain fabrics affect your body and how energy and and like healing frequencies can enter and exit your body. And I was devastated to find out that bamboo ranks really low on the list because I feel like half of my clothes, my pajamas, my sheets, everything is bamboo because it's so soft and I love it. And then they were like, oh, the superior one is really, it's like 100% cotton or linen. And I'm like, linen makes me itchy half the time. In terms of being a conduit? Yeah, basically for for keeping your body, like this is the spiritual side of things where it's like keeping your body at a frequency where you like feel good and are able to basically like manifest and unlock different things in the universe. But if you wear certain other things like a polyester or a bamboo fabric, which is all my wardrobe, then it's much harder to get past that. It's It was basically saying like, you will remain sad. <laughs> I was like, no, but I don't want the linen. To challenge that, I would argue, and this is from zero knowledge or understanding, I would say that it's person dependent, right? Because I have, I have a very, I'm very sensitive to certain fabrics, textures, touches, and like feelings. So if I'm wearing something like linen, I cannot wear. I, it, it like, I feel my blood boil when I wear it. Anyway, I think people have just different 
physical reactions and feelings. And then bamboo is a plant. So as a green witch, which I very much believe that you are, Corinne, I, love I would argue and that bamboo, bamboo and plant-related objects and feelings and things, fabrics, would actually be beneficial for you. Yeah. Well, thank you. And that's science. And that's science. Sabrina, so in science. Wow. Okay. Well, here my goal is to also attempt to astral project because if you are close to mastering it and I begin my journey on it now, imagine how many places we can go together in the astral plane. Like you and I just meet every night and we're like, let's go here. Let's go there. Let's experiment here. Let's talk to the ghosts there. We can go on adventures. We can go on adventures. That's what I'm hearing. I love it. I love a good, a nightly adventure. Mm-hmm. where my physical body does not have to do any work. <laughs> I have, okay, I have so many more things to say, but real quick. So we're about to venture onto this new journey, which is the Two Girls, One Ghost Fall Tour, an investigation into the Conjuring House. And I feel like we have recently been getting a lot of questions like, what is the show? And what do you mean an investigation into the Conjuring House? It can be confusing. I figure before I share two more ghost stories, we tell a little bit about the show. So we're going on tour. We're going on tour from September 7th until November 5th. Okay, we just added a second Wesley Chapel show in Florida. And by the time this comes out, we may have added a couple more second shows. If that's the case, you still have a chance to get tickets. We'd love to see you. Corinne and I went and did an overnight investigation at The Conjuring House. We're not going to give away too much because there's so much that we're going to dive into in the actual show but we did a ton of research. Our research went beyond just being at the Conjuring House. So this is like an investigative journalist type extensiveness in terms of research. We interviewed people. We read books. We went to historical societies. Like we dove in and there is audio, videos, photos, so much mixed media in combination with Corinne and I just being spooky bitches um, that we will that we have put together for this show. It is going to be fun. It is also going to be scary, and there are so many surprises along the way. Mm-hmm. We can't wait to uh, get even more haunted with all of you because we inevitably will become. Or we'll be leaving this tour with more ghosts than we started with. Oh, I think absolutely. And also, just as a reminder, Sabrina said it before, and people are set, starting to send stuff to our P.O. box, but Sabrina, she's now open to collecting haunted things. So if you have a haunted item that you're looking to part with, you can bring it and Sabrina will collect it and I will shake in my boots and... <laughs> I think are you going the, back on that now? No, no, no. Here's the only caveat is bring it to the show if you would like. I will have to interact with it before deciding whether or not I will oh, take it. Okay. I need to okay. be, like I want to, you know, I'm not just blindly taking your haunted things. Right, like right. I yeah. want your demons. I have enough of my own. Yeah. But if you are curious about the show, if you want to come see us, hang out at a theater and, and have a fun spooky night with us, you can find tickets to the show basically on all social channels. They are linked and our website is twogirlsoneghost.com. If you are listening to the podcast right now, or if you're watching it on YouTube, if you click that show more in the show notes or the description, you will also see a link to our website where you can buy tickets. 
Correct. YouTube, though, you can't like link things, which is annoying. You have to like link it in the video. Yeah, you just do URL. I do have other ghost stories, but I'm going to share them in the next recording that we have because I'm cliffhanging yes. everyone. To it's come cliffhanger. Back. It, uh, tune in in two weeks because that's the we're recording all, all out of order right now in preparation for the tour. So check back in two weeks for the ghost stories. And then also last thing, while we are on tour, we are going to be visiting so many haunted places and doing a bunch of fun buddy, best friend things, um, aka me wearing scary things in the morning and creeping you out, Corinne, while we're sleeping. Yeah. We're sharing hotel rooms. So you guys will be the first to know if I have to get my own room. <laughs> it scares me too much. <laughs> but that being said, we're going to share a bunch of stuff on Patreon. So if you want to follow along with like vlogs and daily updates and stuff, you can join us on Patreon. Great. I think we're both so jazzed to talk about this sponsor. I'm a very scent-oriented person, and I don't like stinky smells, which means I extra love great smells. And this podcast is sponsored by Laundry Sauce. It's the world's best-smelling laundry detergent. It's super simple to use. It comes in these performance pods. It gets the job done. All of my stuff comes out perfectly clean, and my whole apartment Ugh, smells incredible. So good. So they have some different scents. I have the Egyptian rose, and it is the most Me too. divine. It smells like there are candles lit in my home all the time. They also have Australian sandalwood or cyber pine. Ooh, pine during Christmas time. Ugh. And the best thing is that they've stripped away all the unnecessary ingredients and artificial dyes. They've maximized the hardworking, science-backed stain fighters and enzymes to ensure your favorite clothes come out looking brand new and smelling freaking amazing and if you're wondering what the secret sauce is behind laundry sauce i have a multitude of stories for you corinne oh wow okay i'm very curious because you had texted me a few days ago and you're like i'm doing a full-on pivot i'm changing what i'm researching and so not that i had peeked at what you were doing before but i feel like i knew a little bit and now i know nothing so here's the thing I had researched an entire episode and I had it researched and it was sitting there. And then I was reviewing my notes in preparation for this recording. And I was just like, this is a bummer. And my gut was like, let's pivot. Let's do something a little less of a bummer. And I pivoted and it's still a little bit of a bummer, but it's cool. So trigger warning, this episode does involve tragic murders and some gruesome deaths and details. Okay. That being said, there is a lot of justice in this episode, which was what I was excited about. Amazing. So the first version of this episode was going to be um, more of a true crime case where a spirit of a victim haunted their killer into confessing of the murder. So I stayed kind of in that vein. And back in like early days, current, like 2017, I think it was actually, it was, it was episode two. I wrote it down. Zona Heastershoe, which was- yes. This story, she's the infamous Greenbrier ghost. She is a woman who came back from the dead to solve her own murder and put her killer behind bars. And then you covered... Teresita Bassa? Yes. Yes. Nice memory. Episode 177. Yes. Well, I mean, they're the two women who basically solved their own murders from beyond the grave. It's hard not to sear their, their names into our memories because... Yeah, they are tough topics, but they're it's really fascinating. Yes. And we recently had a conversation with a couple people who I'm not going to share who because I don't want to spoil 
the content for the tour, but they had a relationship with Lorraine Warren of Ed and Lorraine Warren. And they told us a story about how Lorraine was brought in to help with a police investigation of a murder. And she was taken to the crime scene. And upon stepping into the crime scene, she knew who did it. She knew all of the details. She could, based on the suspect's point and say that was that's the person. And if you confront him about it, he will confess because he has been bearing the guilt. And sure enough, she was correct. And this man confessed. So I was just like, all of this combined, I was like, this probably happens so much more often than we think or than is publicly spoken about. So I wanted to read more. So I found a couple stories of, I think it was, I think it's three or four stories that I will go into. Okay. So Zona Heaster Shrew, the Greenbrier ghost, came back to solve her own murder in 1897. It was the first and perhaps only case in which testimony from a ghost helped convict a murderer. But ghosts have been coming back to help solve their murders far before this and even far beyond this. So I don't know if I'm ever murdered. I will come back. <laughs> I, I hope you're not murdered. But if you are, I will, I will do whatever I can to help your spirit break through. Oh, you will solve my case for sure if you did, if I was. Okay, so I believe that spirits and people will continue to come back to help solve crimes. So my first story for today's episode actually predates Zona Heaster Shoe. It goes all the way back to 1827, so 50 years before Zona Heaster Shoe. Maria Martin grew up in Polstead, Suffolk. It's a small town in England. And when she was 25, she met a young man named William Corder. Corder was 22, and the two fell deeply, madly in love. I think Maria at the time had a child from a previous relationship who she was not married to. Corder was kind of new in town. He was whimsical, like he was charming, charismatic. And so Maria fell in love. Mm. She was so smitten with William. He was great to her kid. They began to speak of marriage. They made plans to run away together. Oh, I feel like there's a romantic montage going in my mind's eye right now of the two of them together. It sounds so lovely. I'm just going to go ahead and say it is not lovely. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I should have guessed this is <laughs> yeah. kind of the, the vein of our podcast, right? This was This is a relationship that very much would be or would have been featured on a podcast like Something Was Wrong. Mm, oh gosh. Yeah. Okay. So in 1827, William and Maria actually had a child together out of wedlock. Very sadly, the child died in infancy and obviously Maria was heartbroken. And she was so worried that William would no longer want to marry her, but he insisted he absolutely did. In fact, he wanted to marry her even more now and then he starts to tell Maria and her family that he's really worried because he heard a rumor that local authorities are coming after Maria for having another child out of wedlock, which oh. given the times, I guess it is, I don't know necessarily all of history in that time or that place, but based on what minimal knowledge I do have, I do know that like, you know, having a kid out of wedlock was looked down upon or anyway, Corder says there's a rumor that authorities want to arrest Maria and it was believable. So clearly it was something that was believable in the time. Yes. So he, Corder, shows up to Maria's family. She, he's in front of Maria. 
her father, Thomas, and then Maria's stepmother, Anne Martin. And William proposes to Maria. He's like, let's sweep you off your feet. I'll bring you to um, Ipswich and evade all criminal charges and we'll get married and live our wonderful life. We'll have, uh, I know we lost our kid, but we'll have another, we'll have another one. We'll start our family and we'll live happily ever after. So the family's sitting there listening to William propose to Maria, telling her of this whole plan. He's like, we're going to go meet at the Red Barn. There they would get married and the two of them would travel to Ipswich. Mm -hmm. So the plan was supposed to happen that night. It was a Wednesday night. And he was like, andiamo, toot sweet. Uh, Vai, vai. Let's go. Let's make this happen. But then he pushes it. He's like, "Uh, I, I need more time to organize all the details. Let's do it Thursday. And then on Thursday morning, he's like, wait, um, tomorrow. What the heck? Yeah, he's all over the place. What does it matter to him? He can just get married and then figure out your travels after, right? Right. So I don't really understand. He's all over the place. And all of a sudden, one day he arrives to Maria's home in a panic. He's flustered. He's like, we have to go right now. The local constable has a warrant for your arrest, Maria. We have to go right now. And obviously, Maria's terrified, and so is her family. William's like, it's going to be okay. We, we've got this. And then he tells her to dress in disguise, to wear the attire of a man so that people don't recognize her. So Maria did what he said. She put on the attire of a man, and she meets William at the Red Barn. Anne Martin, who is Maria's stepmom, was like kind of worried. You know, this is all happening so quickly. She's concerned. She doesn't know what's happening. And she also doesn't hear from her daughter because it's 1827. There's not as readily, easily available ways to communicate with one another. And so she's like, Maria left. I gave her a kiss goodbye. I really hope her and William got away okay. A little while later, Anne and Maria's dad, Thomas, are like, we should have heard from Maria by now. Like if they got married and went to Ipswich, she would have written a letter. Yeah. How far away are Ipswich and, and Suffolk from each other? It's a good I, I'm going to look it up because not that I know how quickly letters traveled <laughs> at the time, Yeah, but I am curious. Let me know. Also, let's look at Kitty real quick. She's like drunk off my arm. Look at her. Oh, look. <laughs> She's so cute. She's so cute. Oh, oh my gosh. It is so close. Okay. So Suffolk to Ipswich in the United Kingdom, it is 14 miles. Okay. That's by car. It says 22 minutes. And that's to like dead center of Ipswich, dead center of Suffolk. So. Yeah. Okay. Well, it was 1827. Roads are different. Transportation's different. Um, Access to transportation's different. So anyway, Anne and uh, Thomas are a little concerned. And then they see William Porter. He's in town. He's back in Suffolk, Suffolk. And so they're like, where's Maria? And he's like, oh, Maria is in Ipswich, we're married, and we're living on the Isle of Wight. So Anne and Thomas are super happy to hear this, but Anne's like, I want to see Maria. I want to speak to her. Like, surely enough time has passed. They can return home, right? Right. But William's like, no, 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 not yet. It's not safe. I don't feel safe yet. And it's around this time that Anne starts to have really weird dreams. She starts to dream of Maria, and it felt as if Maria is trying to communicate with her. Anne told her husband of her concerns, but Thomas was like, no, it's okay. And then shortly thereafter, they start to receive letters from William and Maria. 
and they wrote saying, all is well. Anne and Thomas would write back and ask to get letters from Maria herself because she knew how to read and write. She could write to her parents, but very clearly the responses were written by William because of the handwriting. And in every response, William would say, oh, Maria has a headache. Oh, um, Maria's wrist hurts. She can't write today. Or, oh, the letter she wrote probably got lost in the mail. Uh, My chest is literally tightening right now hearing this because I feel like this is just red flag after red flag. And this feels like a story that unfortunately we do hear a lot in true crime yeah, and murder cases. So, oh my gosh, I can't imagine. And Anne's dreams continue. They become more and more intense. And Maria appears to her in her dreams looking sullen and sad. Anne now is certain that something bad had happened to Maria. And in one of her dreams, Anne finds herself in the Red Barn, which is the same barn that William had told Maria to meet him at. And that's where they were going to get married and before they went off to Ipswich. Mm -hmm. So in the dream, Maria looks at Anne. And then she looks to a specific spot on the floor at the Red Barn and points. Anne understood what it meant. She woke up immediately and begged Thomas. They had to go to the Red Barn and dig in that spot. (sighs) After some convincing on April 19th of 1828, Thomas and Anne go to the Red Barn with some shovels. They dig in one of the grain storage bins and Thomas very quickly discovered and uncovered the devastating truth. His daughter, Maria Martin, was dead. She never made it out of Polstead. So Thomas and Anne discovered a sack with remains. And despite being badly decomposed, Maria was still able to be identified based on her clothing. And apparently she had a missing tooth and the remains had that same missing tooth. They also discovered a green handkerchief wrapped around Maria's neck, which was the key piece of evidence because that handkerchief belonged to, can you guess? I forget his name, but yeah, William. (laughs) William Quarter. Here's the thing. As soon as I knew he was going to be the murderer, I immediately removed his name from my memory. Great. Yeah. With this evidence and the letters William had written to the family, pretending Maria was alive and well with him, they were like, okay, we we know who the killer is. Um, Only one problem. He's nowhere to be found. Eventually, the police track him to a boarding house for ladies in Brentford because... William had remarried, and now he owned this boarding house for women with his new wife. So basically, in their research and in finding him, they found that pretty much right after killing Maria, he posts an advertisement in multiple newspapers for lonely hearts. Basically, that like his heart is broken and he needs someone to fill the void of his past love. So that is how he met his new wife. Okay. He also was such a terrible criminal because despite denying his involvement, he had in his possession the pistol believed that was used to murder Maria and a series of letters that like deliberately and outwardly incriminated himself, like him saying that he committed the crime. And also, do we know the why? So the why is not clear. He was taken to trial and found guilty, but he the entire time continued to say and state his innocence until August 11th, 1828, which was the day of his execution. He was to be hanged for his crimes. 
And he finally admitted that he did in fact kill Maria. So I think it was a bit of like repenting before his death rather than the truth coming out as to why. It's odd behavior to to vehemently deny murdering someone when you pretended that they were alive. You wrote letters from them. And yes, I understand that people grieve differently and there's different trauma responses when something horrible happens and and there's a death of someone in the same room as them or that they loved. But it sounds like because he was asking her to meet him in the red barn and then kept pushing it and delaying it, it sounds like he was maybe not expecting her to agree so quickly or maybe hadn't fully thought out his his plan and then was delaying it so that he could prepare for whatever he nefarious activity he had planned. Yeah, I mean, so he definitely was a con man. So that, I think that's the biggest thing is in his history. They And I didn't go too deep into it, but he was wanted for other crimes. And it was mostly like financial crimes. And so I wonder if, because his running and blaming it on Maria, I think very much was because of something he was running away from rather than Maria. And he wanted Maria to come with him and maybe perhaps she caught on to it or like when they were about to leave, they got into an argument and he killed her. I'm not sure. Do we know what the motivating factor was to open up this home for women with his new wife? His wife, I think. She wanted to do it. And I also think he's a bit of a skeevy womanizer. Yeah. I wasn't sure if there was like another a play here, I guess, with... Maybe. Maybe he got caught before he could finish the end of the... I don't know. But that's all to say that if it were not for Maria's spirit and Anne Martin having these dreams of her spirit, who knows if Maria and her body would have ever been found or if her killer would have ever been caught. Also, this is a fun fact. And that's a small fun fact. But back on episode 142... I told the story of the Springheeled Jack, which was a massive case in England, in London. Mm -hmm. One of the investigators on this case, on the Maria Martin case, was James Leah, who was the same London police officer who went on to lead the Springheeled Jack investigation. So I just thought that was cool. He had some infamous cases going on here. Oh yeah, lots going on. spooky, spirit-centered cases as well. It does break my heart though that, I mean, this is one of those things where like her mom had the message come to her, right? Like she had this extreme gut feeling so much that it pulled her physically along with her spouse to go dig up and find her daughter. And so it does, it's one of those things where not that I need to know how or why, but it is the curiosity in me where it's like, was it the daughter coming through somehow and giving her mom messages or was her mom just so incredibly connected and it's sort of like the mother's intuition thing where she just yearned for her daughter so much that she she just was open to receiving these messages however they came through yeah i mean i bet a little bit of both had to be true in order for the messages to come through and for maria because maria spirit or the dream version of Maria, like very clearly kept showing up and was like trying to get the message across, but couldn't. And as time was going, she finally was able to like point to this space and bring Anne to the red barn in the dream and be like, it's here. I'm here. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. Wow. 
So my next story, I'm going to fast forward to 1933. This is a story of Rose McCloskey. She was 19 years old, and this is a very real Romeo and Juliet type of situationship. She was 19 and deeply, madly in love with a 29-year-old whose name was Dennis Boyle. But Hmm. Dennis is 10 years older than Rose. And so Rose's family is a little bit, they're like, we really like Dennis. We think he's a great man. We think he really loves Rose, but it's just not age appropriate. We don't approve of this age gap. It feels inappropriate. I mean, she's also, I know that we consider 18 as entering adulthood, but it's teen. She's a teen. 19. She's a teen. So they basically forbid Rose from seeing Dennis, but forbidden love furthermore desired Rose and Dennis get engaged in secret. They planned to elope. And then once they were married, they planned to tell their friends and family. They were not going to run off. They were not going to like go live somewhere else. They were very much like, we're just going to get married. That way it's legal. There's nothing our family can do about it once we are married. They will have to accept us. Unfortunately, just like Romeo and Juliet, this love story does not have a happily ever after. On January 4th, 1933, Rose and Dennis snuck off to a park for a romantic evening together. They were making out when, very sadly, someone attacked them. Oh. A mysterious person hit Dennis over the head, knocking him unconscious, and then attacked young Rose bludgeoning her to death with a rock. Oh my gosh. This is such a lover's lane situation. This is horrible. Yeah. And then the killer slit Rose's throat. A group of guys stumble upon Dennis as he's like crawling incoherently looking for help. He's clearly concussed. Like he's confused. He like these, these guys think he's drunk, but then he's like, no, I need help. I need help. Paramedics arrive and rush him to the hospital. And sadly, Rose did not survive. Apparently, oh, this is so tragic. One of the details I read in this story was Dennis was so heartbroken. And when they told him the news of Rose's death in the hospital, his screams and his wailing and heartbroken cries were heard throughout the halls. No, it's so heartbreaking. So Because of this, plus Dennis's injuries, they ruled him out very quickly as a suspect. They were like, we don't, we don't believe you did this. Even Rose's family, like I said, I know given the first story, Maria's story, it might've made you think that Dennis was responsible in this one, but no, despite the indifferences in the family, not really approving of the relationship, they did really think Dennis was a great man. So if it wasn't Dennis, who was it? Six months passed with no break in the case. Until all of a sudden, this is six months after Rose's death and murder, when a man named Thomas Barry shows up to the police station and he's like, Rose's spirit appeared to me. And everyone's looking at him like, oh my God, get out, you drunk man, get out. And he's like, no, I know. He's like, I am fully coherent. I have my wits about me. I haven't had a sip of alcohol tonight. I swear to you, her spirit arrived and appeared to me. And he goes on to explain that he was at home and he saw a woman in his home and he was like very confused and he sees what he then determined to be Rose in this like spectral fashion. And she raised her arms, kind of just like looking at him intently and raised her arms. And when she did that, he was given these images from the night of her murder Mm. from her POV Oh, I have chills. Yeah. So Rose was like 
which you might be asking, like, why did she show up to Thomas? Like, what, what is this about? Rose knew something that no one else did. She knew that Thomas knew something because Thomas Barry was at the park on the evening of Rose McCloskey's death. Oh my gosh. I just got chills again. Rose. Right. And this is why it's like so wild because like Rose, living Rose would never have known that. She was busy with Dennis. Like she didn't see Thomas. She didn't know Thomas was there. But in the afterlife, she knew Thomas was there and that he had a piece of information that would solve her murder. So that night, the same night of Rose's murder, Thomas had been in that park and he had like kind of been passing through with a, I think he had his own date with him and he had seen a strange man kind of like following a couple and he like made note of it. It felt weird to him. He was like, that's like a weird distance that this man is coming from. He could describe, like he could see the man, but he didn't think much of it. Like, you know, people are drinking, walking through the park. Yeah. And as he's heading out, he hears a scream, but he didn't think much of it. Like it, it was late. Like were people drunk and fooling around? He doesn't know. And it was not until Rosa's spirit arrived and showed herself to him this day, six months after her death, did he put it all together. So he went to the police with this story and was able to describe in detail the man that he had seen following the couple. And with this, the cops were able to identify and arrest a man named Richard Bach Jr. who had a bunch of priors. He fit the profile like to a T and within a couple of hours confessed to murdering Rose and assaulting Dennis on the evening of January 4th, 1933. Wow. I have so many questions too about, was this this man's only crime? Do you know any details about his motive, what he did, why? Yeah, I didn't write this down, but so he apparently had seen them be in love and it made him furious and he snapped and he, I mean, who knows the psychological profile that you can go into on this man, but love and the idea of love was a trigger for him, I guess. And so he, in his rage struck on by seeing other people in love and happy, he killed Rose. So, okay. So it was, he didn't personally know them at all. He just no. happened to be there, was clearly very ill. Yeah, very, very. Yeah, and okay, got it. apparently he had no remorse. And when he confessed, he was like, yeah, I did the world a favor because love, basically saying like, lovers should all die. Oh my it, God. Yeah, oh. very, very horrible. But justice for Rose because... Rose was able to come back in spirit form. And I also love that in stories like this, that the people that they go to trust the vision, trust what they're seeing and hearing, and actually do something about it. Because I feel like it is probably so difficult, unless it's your own child, it is probably so difficult for someone like that man to convince himself that he should go into the place and be like, I saw a ghost and she's telling me how she was murdered. Like you are putting yourself in a position to be laughed at, to never be trusted again, to be made a fool. But none of those things is worse than someone's murder. So I think it is important that people who have that information do come forward. But then it's another one of those confusing, conflicting things where it's like, there are so many people, so many psychics that do work with the police force, do work with the FBI. Yeah. And then there's probably just as many people that 
think that they're getting a message and that it's it's kind of convoluting. It conflicts with evidence. It doesn't actually add anything. It's just, it's distracting from from what is the truth. But it's it's hard. How do you differentiate? Right. I mean, that's why they have tip lines, right? Because it's like, if you can, who knows? Even if it's not real, it's a lead worth following and maybe it does end up being. And the only way to know it's a real thing is if it's checked out. Anyway, yeah. what's interesting about this too is that Thomas very easily could have gone to the police station and said like, I just remembered I was in the park the night of Rose's death. But he chose to say... Mm her spirit visited me, which I think is interesting. Maybe just who he is as a person, or, or maybe there was another message that we, the public don't know and that he gave to Dennis or something. I don't know. But I'm also curious because it took six months. And I, I wonder if that was Rose trying to find out who else was there. Like Rose was running an investigation on the paranormal, like on, in the afterlife, or if there were other witnesses as well that Rose was trying to make contact with and they were not able to view it as something like they they didn't take it the way that Thomas did, you know? And also, I mean, we can't necessarily speak for for Thomas because we don't know what his motive was or the reason for him admitting to seeing her spirit versus just saying, I have a bit of information. But I would also, I'm going to make an assumption. And I, okay. I would assume that perhaps he had more information from her spirit than we know. And he realized for him to be for him to give the information he needs to and for it to be trusted, he'd have to give additional information, which if he knows that information, perhaps he could have been looked at as a suspect and the, only the killer would know that. You're going conspiracies here. <sighs> I know. <laughs> I can't help it. No, no, no. I mean, all I will say is it's, it's tragic, all of this. And it's heartbreaking that I even that we even are sharing these stories and that, you know, they exist because ideally there is no murder. And ideally we don't have ghosts coming back from beyond to solve their own murders. Yeah. Well, and it is sad to think that certain spirits are burdened with the responsibility of solving their own murder, you know, that they, they can't just fully find peace and move on and forget about this life and all the negative parts of it that they do stay. But it makes me wonder, like, is that because they're staying because they want to solve it? They have to for some reason? Or is it for the benefit of other people that they left behind, that they know that those people need that closure? Not that we don't always need and want closure, but there's just something else keeping them there. And that's the hard thing, right? Because there's so many unsolved cases and so many cold cases, like it, it's devastating to think or to even like the, to just know that there's nothing we can do about those, like that we can't communicate with the dead. We can't get the answers like these cases did, but at least, and this is the glimmer of hope and I guess bright side of this episode is that at least these cases, there was justice and there are answers. And while there are so many other cases that don't have this closure, I am glad that these ones do. These ones do. Yeah. I also think it's, yes, I'm glad that these ones do. I also find myself both so curious about people who try to make contact with the spirit world in order to aid cases that are cold cases or just active cases in general but simultaneously feeling icky that there are these people, you know, it, I could be one 
easily with like my own spirit box, having no relationship with the family or the people. And I'm asking questions about their missing loved one. So it's, I both find myself so fascinated and eager to get an answer from the other side, but then also I'm like, oh gosh, but this doesn't feel right. Yeah. Well, okay. This is a great segue because I'm about to share two stories of cases that have been solved through paranormal intervention, not specifically by the ghost, but because of psychic mediums. Oh, okay. And yeah, we've heard countless stories of like on the news where there are people and even in the like Gabby, Gabby Petito, I was thinking about her with the first one. Yeah. Where there were a lot of people saying like psychics coming forward saying like, I know the answer and I spoke to Gabby. And it's like, it is a question of, do they really truly believe that? Are they actually, or are they monetizing or gaining some type of self gratification or self-fame, whatever it may be, because it's like a it's like geisty, buzzy story, which is icky. Because it does also seem like there are some real psychics who work privately with investigators, but that's that's the key right there. It's like privately with the investigators yeah, and with like the medium. family. It's not going live on YouTube yeah. and TikTok. Right. And a lot of people, I mean, I don't know if this is like across the board, but of the psychic mediums that we have communicated with, if the people who do tarot readings and all of that, they will not reach out to you and ask you for money. Yes. They, so like, and there's a lot of people out there who like mimic them. Michelle T being so one. Claire Goodchild. They will never ask you yeah. for money. Even I saw on Dana Newkirk's Instagram the other day, there was a, someone was trying to Im- imitate her. I reported there, that account. Yeah. Oh, did you? Good. Yeah. 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 Unfortunately, people that do work within that industry and do have a lot of intuition, they are, their identity is preyed upon because there's a lot of people like us included. We want to believe, we want to experience things, we want answers. And so if someone's like, hey, I have all the answers, I pulled these cards for you and this message you wouldn't believe, but it will unlock all of the answers that you've been having over the past two years. Depending on who you are, you might find yourself be like, okay. They're like, well, I don't usually give things for free. Like if you want to just give a donation, wouldn't you, part of you be like, okay, I could just give it to, I'll I'll just give them 10 bucks and find out. Those are, those are spam. Someone is, it's the prince emailing you for money situation. Don't fall for it. It, But to play devil's advocate real quick, like, and if you hear any background noise, it is not a ghost. It is someone hammering something because I live in a In a city, um, city life. But to play devil's advocate, and you kind of brought this up earlier, is like if you do feel like you get a message from someone, like it does bring up complicated feelings. And like I'll share a kind of non-specific example. When one of our friends passed away, I had a dream about them. And it very much felt like an actual encounter with this friend of ours. But I had to way like can is it something worth telling people or do I keep it to myself is it my way of coping was it a real experience is there any benefit in sharing this like how will people react to it right. is it, it going to upset help? and trigger other people yeah. who, who are right. trying to heal yes so I ended up keeping it between you and I Corinne because it's just you know it, it wasn't like and this is not like, oh, it was an unsolved murder or anything. It was just more of a, a brief moment in a dream where I felt like I communicated with her. And it, but it did bring up challenging emotions and concerns. And I was like, okay. So in that regard, 
playing devil's advocate, if you do end up having an interaction with a spirit of a murder victim or of someone involved in a crime, like it does bring up questions. It's like, what if this could help? But also what if this could really hurt? And how do I yeah. process that and determine what to do with that information? Right. So I will share two stories. This is cases solved through paranormal intervention by way of psychic mediums. And the first story is of Elizabeth Cornish. So on August 8th of 1987, 42-year-old Elizabeth Cornish of Belvedere, New Jersey, was very sadly beat to death as she lay in her own bed. With leads drying up and the case growing cold, Elizabeth's sister requested to bring in a psychic medium to help with the investigation. So this is interesting because she specifically sought help. And I don't know how she was connected to this psychic medium, but she requested that Nancy Weber come in to help. Nancy Weber is, I mean, she could have a podcast of her own or like an entire episode dedicated just to her on our podcast because she very clearly has a long history and an extremely long resume of paranormal intervention, psychic work. She apparently, as a little kid, was called Little Witch by her friends and family. (laughs) So... High praise. Yeah, high praise. Seriously. So this case, the Elizabeth Cornish case, was not her first work, her first time helping police. So basically, when the police heard that Nancy Weber was going to be the psychic helping, they were like, okay, we know her. We trust her. We've actually worked with her before. Nancy was brought to the crime scene, and she knew public details of the case, but nothing else. She didn't know the suspect list. She didn't know who they had talked to or who they had cleared. But as soon as she enters the apartment, she turns to look at the investigator and said, the evil is upstairs. Whatever happened had to come from upstairs. She continued around and looks around the place, starts to describe the suspect. She goes, the man has a scar on his face and he wears a large belt buckle with the initials J-R on it. Okay. That's very specific. Three things. It came from upstairs. Man with a scar on his face, large belt buckle, JR initials. I mean, that's like so many clues. Right. Even if you had a thousand suspects, I feel like there should only be one, maybe five most who probably fit that. Yeah. So the cops are like shocked because the man who lived above Elizabeth Cornish, his name was John Reese, JR. Ooh, not looking good for John. He was a 31 year old farm worker who lived directly above Elizabeth. The only problem was that they had already spoke to him. He had an alibi and he passed a polygraph. But Nancy's like, no, I know it is him. Something is wrong. He is the killer. And so there's something in here that is not correct about the crime. It also really, I feel like most of those things, passing the polygraph, doesn't really matter. Those things aren't reliable. And then who who and what is the alibi? Because that could easily crack. So Nancy comes in even more to help out. Well, first of all, John Reese does have a scar on his face and has the belt buckle that Nancy described. Like, how would Nancy know any of these things to start? And then second, Nancy's like, I'm so certain of this. And as she's spending more time in the crime scene, she goes, your time of death is incorrect. And... She's insistent. You need to re-examine the body and have the autopsy done again. And sure enough, 
they re-examine the body and the coroner, cor- whoa, and the coroner, coroner? The coroner. The coroner. I can't. I'm done. <laughs> Tapping out. Said they made a mistake. The time of death was actually four out four four hours earlier than previously determined. That's such a long period of time. Oh, and whatever his name is, Jr. Upstairs, he probably was shaking in his belt buckle for a few minutes before realizing they were asking him about a time where he actually did have an alibi. And then yeah. he's like, "Oh my god, I'm going to get away with it." And sure enough, he did not have an alibi for the correct time of death. And they speak to him again. They interrogate him further. He finally gets caught up in so many lies now with this change time of death. And he ultimately confesses. So the next and last story I have is um, is actually a story about a woman, a first. It is the first psychic to ever be placed on a witness stand in a murder trial. <gasps> Rosemary Kerr. Wait, what is her name? Rosemary Kerr. Rosemary Kerr. She um, passed away in 2015 at the age of 80, but her aid and guidance in many cases has not gone unforgotten. I also like want to do tons of research just into her as a person individually, yes. but I'm going to speak specifically about this case that was the first time a psychic was placed on the witness stand. On June 9th of 1987, 27-year-old New Orleans resident Andre Daigle met a friend for dinner and a few rounds of pool, which turned into a long night of drinking, after which Andre was never seen again. With the news of Andre's disappearance, his sister, Elise McGinley, who lived in Southern California, was like, I don't think he disappeared. And the police are not investigating this because they believe it's just like a missing person. They don't think there was any foul play. And she was convinced that her brother had been attacked and was in severe danger. So she sought the help of Rosemary Kerr and she went to New Orleans and picked up where the police had left off. And apparently before going to New Orleans, when Rosemary met with Elise, Elise showed a picture of Andre and Rosemary apparently put her hand on the photo and immediately sensed that he was dead. What a horrible feeling to get when you have that ability. You probably hope so much that whatever you feel is something good, that you have an answer to bring this person back for the family. And instead you're just like, oh my gosh, I'm about to deliver the worst news. Yeah. She was able to, in that moment, identify where Andre's body would be found. Wow. Was able to draw a map for the police. And sure enough, in the exact spot that she had identified, Andre's body was discovered. He had been murdered. And with her help, they were able to convict two men who ended up testifying that they killed Andre for sport. What? Yeah. What the? told myself I was going to stop swearing, but I want to swear so badly right now because this is so disturbing. Absolutely deserves swearing. Oh my gosh. It's super fucked up. It's like the most dangerous game. Ew. Oh. Yeah. This actually, okay. I was going to share. So I have two ghost stories that I w- I'm going to share one in the next episode, but this leads nicely, really <laughs> grotesquely into <laughs> one of the stories. Okay. And it's not really a ghost story. It's more of disturbing. So mm-hmm. we have talked about slender man before and like the true case of these two girls who believed so deeply in the slender man l- myth lore legend whatever you want to call it 
that they stabbed their friend however many times with scissors. Luckily, she survived. But uh, a girl, a friend of mine was telling me a story. She's a kindergarten teacher at an elementary school. And she, (laughs) the kids were at recess when all of a sudden she sees these like three kids pinning down another kid and yelling, we're sacrificing you to Satan. Like <gasps> all of what? Yeah. So these kids were sacrificing a classmate. Where and, did they see this? Right. So luckily she was able to intervene. They didn't have any weapons. They weren't actually being violent. They were just hold. I mean, it's violent. She comes and she, no, we're saving her yeah. soul. <laughs> and she goes, she's like, I had to email their parents and tell them that they were practicing oh. demonic rituals during recess. Oh my God, can you imagine? I was what? like, where did these kids learn that? First where of did all? they learn that? But apparently it never happened again. So okay, their parents good. clearly talked to them and yeah. all kids are safe and unharmed. Oh, they all got bathed in some holy water and yeah, what the heck? Some cedar I know kids like sage smoke absorb everything and hear everything. And with the access to the internet now, like who knows what they are watching when we're not watching them? But my gosh, like kindergartners, they're five years old. <laughs> wow, babies, babies. That is freaky. Yeah, man. See, this is. I mean. Are we that shocked? We were, Toys R Us tried to sell us glow-in-the-dark Ouija boards and sparkly (laughs) Ouija boards and tie-dye Ouija boards since we were five, too. So Yeah, that's true. It's just shocking being this old and hearing that. I'm like, no, the children. Not the children. But I probably played the same thing. (laughs) Yeah, you you definitely did. You were creepy. Um, Yeah, so that is my episode on crimes solved from beyond the grave. It is a little bit of GBI, Ghost Bureau of Investigation. Um, We have an afterlife bureau. Incredible, though. It's just so wild that there are so many stories. Like, there's both so many stories and not nearly enough stories, right? Because it's such a rarity that we hear of a story where there was spiritual intervention to, whether it be through a psychic or through a spirit coming from beyond the grave to help solve a crime or a murder. I feel like that is such a rare story, but the fact that you just covered four and we'd previously done two, questionably three, because there was, there was, I think there was like a, a bear lake or not bear lake, but something, something like that, that was a little bit similar that we did one time. The fact that we have a hand over a handful of stories to discuss like this is just incredible. To me, more than anything, these are evidence, undeniable evidence of the paranormal. Mm -hmm. How can you hear these stories, hear a story of a woman who's a psychic putting a hand on a photo of a person she's never met before and being able to draw a map to his body? How? How do you, like, how else do you explain that? Aside from there is something beyond us that we do not understand, that there is an energy of the universe that some people can tap into, that we are energy and our spirits live on after our physical bodies don't. I'm also so curious about how it works for someone like that, who clearly has the psychic abilities. Is it something that they can always do? 
So could they be involved in 100 cases of missing people every single month? Or is this something where sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't? If you drain your energy too much, it won't work. And so they only take on one caseload a month or something because otherwise information gets jumbled and they're not able to successfully help. Like that is something that I'm so curious about. Like what is the, what's the threshold for someone like this? Because I would think that the ability that woman has and so many other psychics, because I've definitely heard stories of people who work with law enforcement regularly to help find people with such accuracy. I'm like, why, what stops us from using those people for literally everything? Good question. But then also like psychologically, if you are a psychic who has helped solve a case, do you then get in your own way? Because you did help in that one, you think you can again, and you really want to, but wanting to so badly actually impedes your ability to. And then if you, you know, misunderstand some type of communication, then you kind of hurt your own reputation. And it's just like, ugh, it's such a complicated, I yeah. Yeah. It's, just, it's all very complex. It is. I guess we have to reach out to someone who was on one of these cases. Yes. I feel like a shot in the dark. Let's email. I sent an email to the woman that Medium was actually based off of because I got her book on Audible. Oh. And I started listening to it. And so I sent an email and she never responded. So That's okay. Maybe she listens and she's like, oh my gosh, I'll check my spam. <laughs> I don't know. It's two girls, one ghost might go to your spam. Here, here's the thing. We can let's just email once a year, every year, every person that we want to talk to. And maybe one year someone will yeah, someone will notice an answer. Yeah. Okay. Well, I have a story from a listener. This was sent in from Sarah. It is called Haunted College Town, Bodies Under the Porch, Shadows Climbing the Walls. Oh. So I thought it was appropriate for this episode. Hi, Corinne and Sabrina. Let me start by saying I've never been a fan of podcasts, but I could listen to you guys all day. I started listening to your podcast last month, and I'm currently on episode 39, so I have a lot of catching up to do. Well, Sarah, I hope we don't get worse. So (laughs) When when was this sent? Recent. It was sent a couple months ago. Okay. I wonder where you are now. Yes. I've had many paranormal slash spiritual experiences growing up, but because of my religion and also being terrified of every little thing that is spooky, I chose to ignore it all. (laughs) However, in the past two years, my fascination with the paranormal world has grown, and I appreciate having your podcast to know that I'm not alone in my feelings or my encounters. And we hate to say this, but it's very possible that listening to our podcast might make you even more open. And <laughs> but also you guys emailing us makes us more haunted. So it's it's reciprocal. It just all goes around in a big circle. We call ourselves the triangle, but really this is just a spooky circle. <laughs> I will share my dad's story and my story as we both seem to have some ghostly college roommates at the same college. I'll start with my dad's story. My dad went to a college in a small town in Pennsylvania in the early 90s. He rented a house on campus with a couple of guys. The house was previously owned by an elderly woman who they assumed either passed away or was moved to a nursing home. Some of the woman's possessions, such as furniture, were left in the basement of the home and the tenants were informed to not use it. One day, my dad and his roommates had some friends over to hang out, including a friendly and well-trained German shepherd. He was the type of dog that listened to his owner's commands and never left his side. 
they realized that they didn't have enough seating for everyone. So one of the roommates decided to go down into the basement and grab a kitchen chair, despite being told to not use that furniture. I will say that feels kind of like you're renting a house, but leaving all this furniture and telling them not to use it. Like, yeah, just remove the furniture then or lock yeah. the basement if if that's right. your storage room. Exactly. Yes. As soon as the roommate came upstairs with the chair, the German shepherd lost his shit. He began barking, growling, and even started lunging for the chair as if he was going to attack it while his owner was fighting to hold onto the leash. Despite the owner's commands for the dog to stop, it persisted to try to get that chair. My dad grabbed the chair and threw it on top of the kitchen table away from the dog, but the dog would not stop. He grabbed at it again and ran down the hallway to throw it in one of the bedrooms. And at this point, the dog was able to break free from his owners and booked it down the hall after my dad. My dad then threw the chair into the room and slammed the door shut. What? Even with the chair being in the room, the dog continued barking and trying to get to it. His owner was more pissed off than anything at this point and grabbed a hold of the dog and left. My dad and his roommates all just stood there in silence, giving each other the, what the hell just happened? Look. Yeah. As time went on, strange things started happening around the house. But here's where it gets mega spooky. My dad decided to go home one weekend, and when he came back, his roommates were absolutely freaking out. They had a small party over the weekend, and one of the guys there claimed to be able to see spirits and sensed something was in there. That night, they invited him back over to see what he had to say. They followed him as he slowly walked through the house and then eventually ended up in the basement. He was staring into a dark corner for a while when he then said that there was a woman standing there and she appeared to be pointing at something beside her. They were all confused as there didn't seem to be anything over there besides some old furniture, so they ventured over to the corner where the man said that she was standing and pointing. To their surprise, they discovered a brick wall that was built in front of the actual house. There was a small space in between two walls with a gap on the side where the ghost was pointing to. One of the roommates decided to walk between the walls. Don't do it! And there is where he found a small wooden door about three feet high with a lock on it. Being a bunch of college guys, they said, screw it, and busted the lock. The door turned out the door turned out to lead to underneath the enclosed front porch, and there they noticed three large piles of dirt that looked like bodies could have been buried underneath them. They were all horrified, and they hurried out of the basement as fast as they could. With the image of the dirt piles engraved in his mind, my dad searched up missing people to see if there were any reports of people who went missing. Stop. But they never found any. Okay, thank goodness. And to this day, he never found anything, but desperately wanted to return to the house. <sighs> Was it the ghost of the previous what? owner confessing to the crimes that she did? Was it the ghost of a victim from under the porch trying to help solve their murder? Or could it have just been dirt? Flash forward to 2020, and I was a senior attending that same college. Because of COVID, the campus was shut down during my final semester, and the college seemed like a ghost town, pun intended. However, I was interning for the college town's local hospital, so I stayed. I had already moved my stuff out of the college apartment that I was living in with my friends, so I began renting a townhouse from a friend, and it was my first time living alone. The house was old with crooked stairs and floors that creaked with every step. The basement of the house was blocked off by some furniture, and I was advised to not go down there. What is up? What is up with the don't go in the basements? I guess wherever this college is, it's like anti-basement yeah. town. Someone's We're hiding all something. hiding their secrets in the basement. I know. 
Noted, I had no plans to go down there whatsoever. Of course, it's a little weird living alone, but I knew it was only temporary and that I'd be out of there within two months when my internship was over. Once I adjusted, I had no problems of living alone until I realized I was not living alone. It started with that feeling that you're being watched while you're asleep and jumping awake. At night, I would sleep with my door closed, but I could distinctly hear footsteps one after another, starting from the top of the stairs and ending right at my doorway. I started sleeping with the AC running beside me, as well as a fan in the front to block out any of the noises. Once as I was going to bed, I stepped into my room and I flicked on the lights. To my horror, there was a shadow figure sitting at the edge of my bed. When I turned on the lights, I watched as it went up by my bed, across the ceiling, and then out the door above my head. I stood in the doorway, breathless and in shock. I tried recreating the shadow, but there was zero explanation as to what I saw. I don't know how or if I slept that night, let alone ever again in that house. On the day that I moved out, I could not have been more ready to leave. My parents came up to help me move my stuff to an apartment on the way other side of town, away from the college. And of course, curiosity got the best of my dad. And he asked, what's in the basement? After we had gotten everything out of the house, we decided, why the heck not? Let's go down, check it out. (laughs) I didn't even make it to the body of the steps before I realized that it was nothing but a small table with candles circling around. I yelled, nope, 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 the whole way out of the house and into the car. This stuff is weird, freaky, fascinating, and at times completely unexplainable. Is up with this town. (laughs) If you got this far, thanks for reading my stories. Again, I love you guys and the podcast. See you on the other side, Sarah. Sarah, where the heck did you go to school? What is happening? I I feel like there's some weird, like, shoot, what was The Watcher? Did you watch that on Netflix? I did watch it, yes. There was, I feel like there's some weird, similar stuff that was going on in that neighborhood happening in this town. Like the neighbors are in on it. They're renting their houses out, but everyone's like, keep them out of the basements because that's where we live. That's where we do our rituals. What the heck? It also makes me wonder if this town, I'm just wondering about Prohibition era and how many rum runner tunnels and secret tunnels there could possibly be between, or even like, you know, a mob town where I'm like, are, are the basements, the connection points and people are just trying to like seal them off. And it's not like anything bad is happening there now, but it's just more dangerous. And you don't want the liability of your tenants crawling into a a tunnel. I have to argue with you here because you said you don't think anything weird is happening there now. She went downstairs and there were candles <laughs> in a circle around one singular oh. table. It's kind of like barbarian. Actively, yeah, it's very barbarian. There is actively some type of like ritualistic weird Something stuff there. happening. Yeah. Okay. Maybe these kids that my friend told me about trying to sacrifice their friend went and visited this town. <laughs> they went into the basement. Their parents were like, we're going to go sit outside. You guys hang out in here. Don't do any, don't get into anything. And it's like rugrats, you know how they always wander off. Yeah. yeah. They went into the basement. Those kids learned a, <laughs> a thing or two about dark seances. Yikes. So scary. Sarah, uh, you need to tell us more about this town. Yeah. And I really um, hope that the mounds of dirt were not bodies and maybe they were like animals or just, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It is strange, though, that 
the one friend who came over that was a medium saw the woman like I was almost expecting it to be the older woman kind of pointing to like this is where my chair was and it's been moved but it was <laughs> you touched it was my like, chair you touched my chair but it wasn't that at all it was like here is no. a hidden basically walkway like here's a, a hidden path that leads to underneath that why well, are there three body-sized mounds of dirt if someone works in like pest control or landscaping, can you tell us why that would be there that's not a body? Yeah. Are there like certain animals that burrow like that? Yeah. And it sounds like it was well-spaced. This is one where like usually you and I are so down to like believe in ghosts, believe in conspiracy. But this is one situation where I very much want the skeptics to give me reasonings, like rational explanations. Like I want the rational side of it. Did you ever watch Unsolved Mysteries on Netflix? The few seasons that they dropped? Yeah. It kind of reminds me of the episode. It might've been in- The family. The the family. And they all went missing, but really the dad had killed them and they were all buried underneath the porch. Yeah, that's really sad. Yeah. Well- well, this I is have a, good a great day, everyone. <laughs> see you on the road. Um, oh, see you in the basement. Uh, yeah. Cool. If cool, you're cool, a psychic cool. who gets messages and you often have this battle and debate of like what to do with the message, please let us know what you do and how you cope and deal with it. I'm so fascinated. And if you have any ghost stories or cryptid, a creepy alien, supernatural type of story, Email them to us at two girls one goes podcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can rate and review us on iTunes. You can follow us on all the social medias, watch us on YouTube, join our Patreon for all the amazing, fun, spooky stuff. And we'll see you on the road September 7th through November 5th. We are doing a live tour, hopefully coming to a city near you. I mean, there's 32 cities and like 34 shows at this point. So, so yeah. check it out in our show notes. Uh, thank you Black to all of you guys are- for... Good luck. Black cats are good luck. Check out Stray Cat Alliance to adopt Soot, whose real name is... Regina. Regina. Um, She might be adopted by now by the time this episode comes out. True. But there's always other kitties out there to adopt. So many. We love you all. And thank you, Christina, for editing our podcast. Thank you to Avery and Loren for helping us on the business side of things. And thank you to all of you for listening and supporting our show over the six years that we've been doing Mm -hmm. this. We love you all. And we will see you on the other side. Very spooky.